Well, earlier I read from Matthew. Matthew's account of the cross tells us that Christ was crucified. It gives us the facts surrounding his crucifixion. But it doesn't do much by way of explaining for us why the cross happened. Of course, what we've sung tonight has helped us with that. But we don't get that truth from the hymns we sing themselves. We, we put in hymns what we get from God's word. And so there are other places in the Bible that tell us not just that Christ was crucified or how he died, but why. What is the meaning of it? What is the significance of the cross? What, what are the implications of the cross? Galatians 3 is one place where we get a very helpful answer. Would you turn there in your Bible to Galatians 3 if you have one with you? If not, it'll be on the screens to my sides here. Galatians 3. In this chapter, we're going to see why the cross was needed for humanity. The problem that we have without a cross. The hope that is found through the cross. And the pathway to receive that hope that's in the cross. We could say it gives us the, the why, the who, and the how. Just five short verses here in the middle of Galatians 3, starting in verse 10. The Apostle Paul writes, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Well, here we have a passage on the curse, the Christ, and the cross. That's the title of this message, and it's also our outline for working through the passage. The curse, the Christ, and the cross. Let's consider first the curse. To understand the cross, we have to first understand the human condition. We have to understand why the cross was needed. The human condition here is stated as so bad that a fitting word for it is cursed. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now here when it says the law... It's mainly referring to Old Testament law or Mosaic law, the law of Moses. But relying on works of the law in order to get to God is not just a, a Jewish problem. It's not just an Old Testament thing. It's a human problem. It's a universal problem to try to work our way to God. Whatever law we're using to get to him. More on that in just a bit. Hold that thought. Let me give you first some background 
on this letter written to the church in Galatia. In the first century, the church in Galatia had false teachers come in and begin to teach that Gentiles could be Christ followers, but only if they first became Jewish through outward rituals and performances like circumcision and food laws and following the Old Testament Jewish calendar. So the Apostle Paul writes to confront those false teachers who were teaching the Galatians to rely on works of the law. And of course, he's also writing directly to the Galatians to admonish them to not be tempted or to begin to trust in, to to rely on those works. And Paul uses the Old Testament to prove that no one ever got to God through their obedience. You see in the second half of verse 10, for it is written, quoting from Deuteronomy 27, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In the Old Testament, yes, there were commands for obedience and expectations for obedience and and blessings for that obedience. And there were also warnings about the disobedience. But, But the law's primary purpose was not to bring life, but to expose need. It was not to give the prescription, but to give a painful, prolonged diagnosis. That's the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. Here's how Paul later unpacks it in the book of Galatians. Look at Galatians 3, verse 21. This explains what he says in our passage. He asks the question, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture, the Old Testament law, actually imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might eventually be given. Now before faith came, that's before Jesus came, we were held captive under the law. We were imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law literally was our schoolmaster. God gave the Old Testament law to school Israel in its sin problem. And the law said, you must do it all. And if you do not do it all, all things in the law, all the time, all the way you'll be cursed, cursed. I don't know how that word curse sounds to you. You might think it sounds superstitious. You might think that's something from Indiana Jones. That's something someone might try to do down in South America with a voodoo doll. But curse actually comes from God. Uh, We find things in the world that are spinoffs of what we find in the Bible. They're sort of rude and crude reflections of what God has done and has said. So the first time we learn of curse in the Bible is in Genesis 3. Sin comes into this world. 
The serpent is cursed, and the woman is cursed, and the man is cursed, and the ground is cursed. It's not put under a spell. That's not what cursed means. It means it's under judgment. Cursed is a word of judgment. So again, those who do not do all of the law, all of the time, all the way, are not graded with a B minus or a C plus. Eh, your teacher might write above the C plus paper. Try harder next time. Not so with God. Now they're cursed. They're under a category. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's no grading going on. It's not all relative. There are two categories, blessed and cursed. So Paul's quoting from Deuteronomy 27. A chapter later, here's what we find. Blessings and curses. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. God says, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God and do all his commandments, all these blessings will come upon you. Blessed you will be in the city. Blessed you shall be in the field. Blessed will be the fruit of your womb. Blessed will be your ground and your cattle. Blessed you'll be in your basket and around your kneading bowl. Blessed will you be when you go out and when you come in. All the time, everywhere. But, Deuteronomy 28 goes on. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord to do all of his commandments and his statutes, then all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed you will be in the city. Cursed you'll be in the field. Cursed will be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed will be the fruit of your womb. Cursed will be your ground. Cursed will be the young of your flock. Cursed will you be when you go out and when you come in. All the time, everywhere, in all things. There are two options with polar opposites, blessed and blessed to the hilt, and cursed and cursed into the ground, if not hell itself. There are two options, but no one can achieve the first one. The blessing, it's, it's unreachable. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. Or as our passage says, it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Why? Well, because verse 12, the one who does them, the commandments, and commits to them, he shall live by them. In other words, he must live by them and completely. And none have lived by them completely. If you buy into earning God's blessings with your efforts, you have to go all in. And that just already exposes the problem because you weren't all in before and the stamp is cursed. The verdict has been made and there's no removing the curse by doubling up your efforts going forward. 
You might say, from now on, I'm really going to do all of the law, all the time, all the way, in every instance. Well, number one, that doesn't remove your guilt. It doesn't remove past sins. But also, you know from experience, don't you, that your resolve is sometimes bigger than reality. You, like me, often say, you know what, I'm not going to do this anymore. You know what, I'm really going to start doing this and that now. And you haven't quite lived up to your promises. As I said briefly already, the issue here at stake in Galatians 3 isn't just for those who were tempted to rely specifically on Old Testament rules. It's not just a Jewish thing. And Romans 2 helps us with this. Romans 2, there, verse 14 and 15, Paul says that the Gentiles, that is, those who do not have the law, they by nature sometimes do what the law requires. And when they do, they show that they have a law, not on tablets of stone like God gave Moses, but a law written on their hearts. They have a conscience that bears witness to the fact that there's a law on their hearts. And so they have these alternating instincts, Paul says in Romans 2. Sometimes they're accusing themselves and sometimes they're excusing themselves. Now this is thick theology, but if you think carefully with me, it explains a lot of human experiences. I mean, why is it that some irreligious people, atheists, agnostics, whatever, are in some ways drawn towards various rules and rule keeping? Whether it's being nice to people or not judging people or, or helping humanitarian efforts or caring for the planet or caring for needy animals. We all have our own rules or ideals, and many of them are good, and they actually reflect the fact that there's a law written on human hearts. There's an instinct towards certain good things because of God. So Christians have an explanation for the good that's done in this world uh, apart from being a Christian. The Bible also has an explanation for all the guilt that we all feel. No matter what our standard is, no matter how personalized and individualized our standards are, right? We sometimes ignore what God has said and we make certain rules for ourselves. But even then, we fall short. We fall short of our, our own standards. That's why there's neuroses in this world. That's why self-help is big business these days. And if you say, uh, not me, I actually don't care about any of that. I'm a law unto myself. I do what I want. I am my own law. And so I don't feel guilty. I don't feel subpar. And I don't wonder if I fall short. Well, the Bible has a category for that too. Remember? Your conscience sometimes excuses and sometimes accuses. 
Sometimes we prove that there's a law written on our hearts and then our conscience accuses us when we fall short. And sometimes, Romans 2 says, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness in an attempt to get our consciences excused or off the hook. And all of this is because we're under a curse. We're under God's righteous curse for the punishment of our waywardness. We're his. We were made by him. We were made for him. We were made for his glory. We were made to reflect his image in his ways. That doesn't stamp out personality or individuals. But it does show us that we were made to be like a father. We were made in a family. We were made to do things that our father does. And none of us have done that, or at least not well at all. And we know that. And we know it's a problem. And some try to fix that problem by pretending it's not there, that God has not said, that he does not exist. And some try to fix it by comparing themselves to others, thinking it's just a game of relevance, relativity rather. And if they're better than some other, then they're good enough, they say. Some try to fix it by trying harder and harder and harder. And that's the one Galatians is addressing here the most. That system, Galatians says, demands perfection and you don't have it. You can't rely on anything you've done to get God to look your way. All you can do as a first step toward God is to realize that the problem is so complex and so serious that a word like cursed is actually a fitting word for your troubled state. And if you do not like that word curse, if you say, I don't think so, I, I recognize a problem, I wouldn't call it cursed. I'd like to say, I'm mistaken sometimes, I'm misguided perhaps, misunderstood often. I'm a work in progress, sure. I'm not perfect, but I am special. Whatever else you want to use to describe your state before God apart from Christ, if you shirk that word cursed, the best advice I can give you is for you to just keep working your system then. Keep at it and go at it real hard until you damn it. Until you're ready to damn it. Give it up. Come to the end of yourself. When you feel your cursedness, then the answer is close by. Because in our passage, there's a curse, but then secondly, there's the Christ in verse 13. The Christ. We saw in verses 10 through 12, we're all under a curse because of sin and our self-righteous attempts to compensate for sin. But, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Christ is the answer. Christ means Messiah. It means the anointed one. It was the, the promised one of the Old Testament, the long-awaited one. It's the conclusion. It's the answer. 
And this is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ, the Son of God, and God in the flesh. As the Nicene Creed rightly says, as it summarizes what the Bible says about Jesus, it says that he's the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. He is God from God, light from light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. Now this leads us to ask what kind of Christ we're talking about who suffered under Pontius Pilate, who's dead and buried. Because in Jesus' day, the consensus among the Jews was that the Christ, when he came, would bring nationalistic, militaristic, triumphalistic victory against the geopolitical enemies, especially the Romans. There was not any consensus at the time that Messiah would come and die especially at the hands of his enemies. You might remember that monumental moment in in Mark chapter 8. The question in Mark at this point is, who is this Jesus? Who is he? Who is he? Everyone's asking. Then Jesus turns the tables and asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? They offer various responses. Jesus asks Peter directly, and Peter gives the right answer. You are the Christ. The Christ, the Messiah, the one, the long-expected one. And Jesus says, good job, Peter. You got it. My father revealed that to you. That's it. That's right. Right on. But then Jesus begins to predict that they will be going into Jerusalem. And there he'll be betrayed and he'll be rejected by the religious leaders and the Roman officials and he'll be crucified. And on the third day, he'll rise. And it seems like Peter didn't even, the whole resurrection thing didn't even hit his brain because rejection and crucifixion were were such stumbling blocks for him that he he couldn't even get to what the resurrection might mean. He couldn't conceive of a crucified Christ that would seem to him to be direct contradiction of terms. Crucified Christ? And so he says to Jesus, Oh, not so, Lord. No way. Over my dead body is the Christ going to be crucified. And that's when Jesus rebuked him in the strongest of terms. Get behind me, Satan, you devil. You God-opposer? He was opposing God because the cross was God's plan all along. So now we come to our third 
C of our text, the cross. There's the curse, there's the Christ, there's the cross. We've already started to see it in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How? Well, it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That line comes from Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Who is hanged on a tree? Well, criminals were. That's what it meant mostly in Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Whether they were hung on a tree as part of their execution or hung on a tree after their execution as a statement, don't end up like this guy. Those hanging on a tree were the guilty. They were cursed. They had done wrong. They got caught. They were tried and judged, judged, and their sentence was carried out. This is a cursed man. This is the embodiment of that cursed man in Deuteronomy 28. Cursed is him when he comes out and when he, when he goes out and when he comes in. If anyone was abandoned by God, like Deuteronomy was talking about, it'd be anyone who was hanged on a tree after their execution. This is why at the scene of the crucifixion, almost everyone there is mocking Jesus, deriding him, spitting upon him, and insulting him. It wasn't just an angry mob out of control. I'm sure they actually thought they were doing the right thing by speaking curses upon Jesus. I suspect they were simply acknowledging what they thought was obviously the case, what they had learned from Deuteronomy 21. Everyone who's hanged on a tree is cursed. You want to know what God thinks of this Jesus? He's cursed. He's hung on a tree. And from one angle, they were right. Jesus was accursed on that cross. This is surely what Saul, before he was called the Apostle Paul, this is surely what Saul thought was going on. This is why he opposed Christians and the Christian message. He thought it was blasphemy. In the name of God, he was trying to stomp it out. But it's only from one angle that Jesus was accursed on that cross. He was not from another angle accursed because of his own sin. He was bearing the curse of the world. He was not guilty, but perfectly righteous. He had the right to have every ounce of blessedness that has ever existed in this world or in any world. And he sacrificed that blessing for a sin-cursed world. He was abandoned that we might be accepted. He was rejected so we might be received. He was beaten so that we might be blessed. He was, he was condemned so that we might be set free. He was judged that we might be justified or declared righteous. He, he died so that we might live. At the cross, he was bringing hope and 
and victory that no geopolitical utopia could ever, ever achieve. He wasn't there to fix the problem of Romans, but of human rebellion, which stretches across every nation and plain and island and ocean. The problem is not them, whatever or whoever they are. The problem is not social or educational or political. The universal fundamental problem in this world is sin. It is a curse. And so the cross is the only solution for the problem of a curse. You need a curse bearer to fix the curse. You need a righteous Christ to give righteousness to the unrighteous. This Christ was the only one whose curse-bearing death could crush sin and take our curse away. The Bible speaks of substitution, that Jesus was our substitute. He uses words like for, right? Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. The righteous Christ suffered for unrighteous sinners. And sometimes the Bible speaks of this substitution in financial terms, that we had a great debt and Jesus took our debt and paid for it. And with his infinite riches, he gives us his riches and we are rich as a gift. Sometimes the Bible speaks of the same thing, but in judicial terms, like this passage here. We were under a condemnation, a declaration of guilt, of curse, of condemnation. But because Jesus took our guilt, we might be justified or declared righteous. Now, how can this be true for us? How can this happen? How can this transaction of substitution be ours and that we know it is ours? Well, this gift, this payment made and righteousness given can be ours by only believing it to be true and asking for it to be ours. That's all it takes. In fact, that's what it must take. That's all it can be. It must be faith or trust or relying on Christ and Christ alone or it won't be ours at all. This was Paul's point from the very beginning of our passage. According to Galatians 3, there are two ways to live. Relying on yourself, your works, that's verses 10 through 12 of Galatians 3. Of course, we saw there it doesn't work. It's futile. It only proves our curseness because no one's justified by the law. No one's ever kept all the law, all the time, all the way. One way to live is relying on works, and most of the world does that. The other way, the only other way, is to rely on Christ. To rely on Christ is simply a, another way of speaking of faith. Trust, belief. And you see in our passage, the righteous shall live by faith. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
The promise of blessing, verse 14, can come to us through faith. That is the promise that was first given to Abraham back in Genesis 12, where God said through him he would bless the nations. That promise can be ours through Christ, through faith. All you got to do is follow Abraham's lead. Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what are you relying on? What are you trusting in? What do you bring to God? Or have you already come to the end of yourself? Are you, maybe tonight for the first time, you're tired of striving and worrying and, and trying again and again. Hear the welcome from Matthew 11. Come to me, Jesus says. All you who are weary and heavy laden, worn out and spent from trying and trying and trying on your own. Come unto me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Don't be like the Pharisee in Luke 18. Be like the tax collector in Luke 18. In Luke 18, Jesus told this parable to some who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off in an unworthy stance, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven because he knew of his guilt. But he, but he beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, with nothing in his hands to bring to God, that man went down to his house justified that day, not the Pharisee. Not the better, not the comparer, not the one who was trusting in his own righteousness. The man who knew he had no righteousness to offer and simply beat on his chest and said, God, save me. God, be merciful to me. Maybe tonight you would pray a similar prayer to God. God, because of Jesus, because he bore my curse, I admit my guilt. I am a sinner. I am hopeless apart from his work. I trust tonight that his work is enough. When this happens, friend, you're forever changed. You're changed at a heart level. When such grace comes into a life, there's a new heart. There's new desires. Now, with Jesus on our side as our friend, there is a new, newfound, God-given, heartfelt reason to obey, to obey out of love, not being gripped with fear to earn his love. With his grace and favor given to us, holy, undeserved, well, we actually really desire to obey him because we're in relationship with him and we want to please him. 
This is why Christians sing. If you're not a Christian, you might wonder, why do Christians sing so much? Well, in Malachi, it says when God shows up in mercy, you're going to leap like calves from the stall. Like calves who are in a dank shed. And the sun hits them, and their bodies are warmed, and they prance around. That's what it's like when God shows up in mercy. And we Christians, we, we sing because we can't help it. We sing because we love to recount what he's done, what he said, who he is, what it means for us. We like to remind each other, and the best way to do it is to put it in song and mingle it with praise. It's for ourselves, it's for each other, but also it's to God and thanks to him. And so we say, we sing, I will sing of my redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, oh, sing of my redeemer with his blood. He purchased me on the cross. He sealed my pardon. He paid the debt and made me free. We Christians love to sing. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. It is well. It is well. It's well with my soul. Or we sing... Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. He sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Well, these are the songs of those who have abandoned self-reliance and have come to cling to Christ alone. They've come to believe that the curse has been conquered by Christ through his cross, and they are now changed. Not perfectly so, but increasingly so. We know this to be true because it's our experience. We know this to be true because it's recorded in Scripture And we know it to be true because also in Scripture we find that he not only died, but on the third day was raised. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for such great mercy. We stand in awe tonight of your cross and you bearing the curse for sin-sick, God-cursed rebels like us. As Paul will later say in Galatians 6, we glory in the cross, not in ourselves, not in our work, not in any achievement, not what people will think of us. We glory only in the cross. We thank you that we can. We pray others would. Thank you that you died and that you're raised and that you live forevermore. Amen.